Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's Saturday, May 8th, and you're listening to Back Chat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And I'm Charles Rushforth. Coming up on the show today, we're talking about robot staff you might have seen taking over Woolworths and the Indian COVID-19 crisis. But first, we look into how the government and social media has fostered an increase of hostility towards journalists during the pandemic. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Text us in on 0409 or you can always tweet us at Backchat FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. We started off the week with World Press Freedom Day and a report that revealed abuse towards journos on the rise. The Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance says that attacks on journos increased last year, largely thanks to the political polarisation caused by the pandemic. Now, nearly 90% of journos surveyed by the MEAA have said that they're fearful of threats, harassment and intimidation becoming their new normal. Chantelle spoke to Australia's largest media union and some of the journalists who have witnessed this alarming shift. Each year, the MEAA conducts a report that outlines the harassment, violence and intimidation that journalists face in Australia and globally. This year, over 88% of journos surveyed said they're fearful that the increased abuse they experienced during the pandemic will become their new normal. The MEAA president, Marcus Strom, says that Australia is experiencing a cultural anti-journalism attitude fostered by the government and throughout social media. We've seen Australia slip down the press freedom rankings in recent years, uh, largely triggered by the police raids on the ABC and a News Corp journalist uh, two or three years ago over their reporting on national security issues. There's always been an attempt to promote political agendas by whipping up hostility to those people who seek to expose corruption or misuse of power, uh, a real shoot the messenger uh, approach, which unfortunately in some countries is taken literally. Josh Butler is a political editor at The New Daily and says that covering politics in Canberra has highlighted the political polarisation that exists in our media landscape and an increased hostility toward journos as a result. Politics especially can, you know, be a very charged sort of subject. I mean, it it does sort of have those uh, divisions, you know, either side and it does, you know, fire people up. I mean, you know, if you're if you're a lefty and you write a story that's, you know, having a crack at Labor or the Greens, people arc up. If you're a conservative person, you, you know, write a story about the Liberals and you're going to arc up then. I think in the last few years, especially, there has been uh, this, you know, polarisation of, of, of debate and of, um, you know, politics um, that a lot of people have, have talked about. I think it has gotten more tribal. It has gotten more um, vicious. The report highlighted an increase in animosity and attacks towards journos throughout the pandemic specifically. Journalist and host of the Old Boys Club podcast, Justine Landis-Hanley, says that she's encountered a new form of trolling online during this time. Because more people are online and because more people are stuck at home and are finding that the best way to connect is online, we are seeing a change in the persistence of trolls or the presence of people online who, I guess, like, 
really de- really want and are really demanding a response from journalists that journalists really don't have any obligation to give. I think COVID has really, like, like every part of society, I think it's really accelerated um, the, people's tension, people's emotions, like it's really heightened things. I mean, things can change so quickly on, on, like, on a dime these days. Like you can go into lockdown, go out of lockdown, you know, with, with you know, five minutes notice. I think everything's heightened. I think everyone's tensions are higher than they normally would be. I think, I think people's emotions are just, you know, so wound, so tight. COVID has helped promote this fake news conspiracy theory movement to attack journalists. That has created a culture whereby, again, the messenger and the reporter is being turned into a, a target by, by a political movement. Marcus says that there's actually a lot of harm that comes from targeting journalists from the standpoint of the state. He says that attacks by politicians can actually create a climate that welcomes the public to intimidate and threaten journos who are simply doing their job. This year, with the um, reporting on the culture in Parliament House, I think you had the quite disgusting situation where male politicians accuse female journalists of campaigning when they're just reporting uh, and holding a mirror up to the pretty poor behaviour and the pretty disgusting culture that exists in Parliament House. To accuse female journalists who are asking legitimate questions about workplace culture that has led to allegations of rape and sexual harassment. Turn that back on those journalists and accuse them of being campaigners. Uh, I, I mean, I found that completely revolting and a real indictment on the political culture and the leadership in Parliament. This week, the government attacked journalists for inciting fear and rage over the criminal penalisation of Australian citizens returning from India to Australia. Like, they directly blamed journalists for quoting the fourth line in their press release that they released on the issue and blaming them for, like, you know, blowing this issue out of proportion and being the reason why Australians were so upset about the fact that citizens can't come back to Australia at the moment unless or face, you know, criminal fines and and potential jail time. And that is just ludicrous. It's so irresponsible of the government to use journalists as a scapegoat and try and claim dodgy or poor reporting when journalists are just trying to do their job and that really feeds into a culture of mistrust of journalists like that is a dangerous territory for a government to move into that was really frightening this week that's that's something that i am most concerned about the direct consequences it's going to have for journalists This year, we've seen female journalists across the country lead the coverage on sexual misconduct in some of our highest offices. 41% of female journalists say they experienced harassment, bullying and trolling on social media. That's nearly half of all female journos surveyed. So when I've covered women's rights and consent and abortion and reproductive rights, those are the times that I've actually seen the biggest spikes in harassment. Anything woman-related, lifestyle reporting gets you so many hateful comments because it's typically associated with women. The hate that women receive, and, and this is also grounded in my own experience, is very gendered. You know, it's attacks of your credibility because you're a woman and therefore you're biased to certain issues around women's rights. 
That was our deep dive into journalist abuse in Australia and how the government has played an active role in how we treat the fourth estate. Stay tuned because up next we'll be talking to Associate Professor Catherine Kazmarik about the literal robots showing up in woolly stores these days. But first, a song out of West London. This is AJ Tracy with Perfect Storm, released very recently, less than a month ago. Language warning. Woolly shoppers across the country have been left with mixed emotions in recent weeks as the supermarket giant expands its trial of Hawkey, an in-store robot that roams the store searching for spills and checking stock levels. A couple of weeks ago, Woolies also announced plans to build a fully automated fulfilment centre in Western Sydney to service online orders. Hawkey sort of looks like someone elongated Pixar's Wall-E and then crossed him with a Dyson Airblade. Um, look, automation and AI are increasingly being used by big retailers and it's sparking fresh conversations about job security and the future we're kind of heading towards. So are we looking at a robot-led utopia or is it a dystopian future that's in the last three Terminator movies? To unpack these questions, we're joined by Associate Professor Catherine Kazmari from the USW, a specialist in AI and robotics. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I've actually run into one of these little guys at a Woolworths store in Tempe recently. As an AI expert, what's your take on the newest Woolworths employee? I think these are a really delightful application. So these are taking a humble, everyday object, in this case something like a traffic cone, and they're putting smarts in them. So this traffic cone can now go and find the best place that it should stand, uh, specifically somewhere where there's a spill in this case, and it can put a, a warning message up to make sure that people don't trip on that, that spill. And just for, for good, in, good uh, you know, extra usage, they've then gone and made it so that it can scan the shelves as well, so that it can check the, the stock levels. So I think it's really delightful. So as we've said, it can check stock levels and detect spills in store. Is this really cutting-edge technology, or is it just mimicking things that we have in our home already? I think that these are cutting-edge commercial applications of robotics. So the, the science that we do is really looking at fundamental and sometimes very abstract problems. So there is a significant amount of work that has to go into taking some of that fundamental science and building it into applications actually in the, in the shop in this case. So I think that uh, in that sense, they really are cutting-edge applications. We've seen um, massive moves in automation from both Coles and Woolies recently, as well as online retailers like Amazon, um, uh, potentially display this, displacing thousands of jobs um, with robotics. Are we moving into a world where robots are going to create problems for current and future workers? I don't think so. I think we're moving into a world where people do things differently. So as we bring robots into these environments, the types of jobs that people will do will change. Uh, so one of my favourite examples is my robot vacuum cleaner at home. So in the past, what I had to do was haul out the big heavy vacuum cleaner and run it around the house, and you know that might have taken me a half an hour of actually hauling it around the house. And now the jobs with my robot vacuum cleaner are different. So there are serviceable parts, parts that need to be maintained, parts that need to be replaced. And so I have the much more delicate job now of checking those parts, replacing them where necessary, um, maybe cleaning and um, putting them back into the robot. So I still have a job to do. I have to prepare the environment for my robot. I have to get kids' clothes off the floor. Um, but the jobs that I do now are different uh, to when I was using the older technology. So I'm really positive about the future in terms of uh, how robots will interact with our daily lives. 
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. If you've just joined us, we're we're talking to Associate Professor Catherine Kazmarik about robots, AI and our future. So, Catherine, where is the AI space at right now and what kind of timeline are we looking at in terms of the widespread introduction of autonomous tech? So artificial intelligence study at the moment is still one of those fields that's quite fragmented and specialised. So you'll have different researchers who are looking at different specific things. So some people might be looking at machine learning. Some people might be looking at things like how to make a machine plan. They might be looking at putting emotions in machines. Uh, But we don't yet have the systems that actually bring all of these things together. So a, a particularly clever application might bring a couple of those together. So our Woolies application has machine vision and it might have some planning. Uh, but we don't have those true AI systems that we might imagine in the future that bring all of those things together. So uh, that is a part of where the field is going. Talk- um, and- so sorry, talking about um, that, that stage of the field we're at, I suppose the idea of robot and AI ethics is something that we've spoken about a lot recently um, in terms of driverless cars, whether that raises any ethical dilemmas there. Uh, does this, are we at any more important points in that debate at the moment? Yeah, I mean, ethics in AI has been one of the most fascinating things that I've watched over the course of my career. So 15 years ago, when I was doing my PhD, I remember having a conversation about ethics with some of the fellow students. And it was really, at that point, something that people laughed about. We didn't understand where the need might be. But over the last 15 years, that field has progressed enormously. So there are international task forces now that are examining the questions of robot ethics. There are actually standards. So the IEEE, the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, is uh, doing a project at the moment to start to develop the standards around ethics in AI. And that's got a a big focus on prioritising human wellbeing as we do artificial intelligence. So the, the field and the ethics in the field has progressed enormously in the last 15 years. And it's taken very seriously now. And Catherine, you're definitely on the more positive side of the fence when it comes to robots and automation. What do you say to those out there with reservations about AI in our day-to-day lives? I think it's a really exciting field and I am very positive about the way that it's going to interact with people in the future. I think there's so many areas where uh, it can contribute to our community. So from things like in the household, changing the types of jobs that people have to do in the household, there are things like robotic exoskeletons that can support people uh, with disabilities or people who are needing to do rehabilitation from an an injury. Uh, And there are other robotic applications that are going to take on progressively dangerous and dirty jobs in the community that are really hard for people to do. Uh, So I'm really positive about where that will take us. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Catherine Kazmarik talking about where we're at with AI and robotics and what might lie ahead. Don't go anywhere because up next we're breaking down the India travel ban and hearing from Indian Australians about their thoughts on the second wave. And we want to hear from you. Is the travel ban racist or do you think the government is doing what's necessary? Let us know your thoughts on 0409 945 945. But now a song out of Bankstown. This is Watching Me from Henny and Zinni. Fact chat. Text 0409 945 945. 
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM. Over the past week, India has had a wave of COVID-19 cases with record numbers in infections and deaths. The scenes coming out have been heartbreaking to watch as hospital beds are full and oxygen is running out. This week, the Australian government announced a travel ban, um, and which is threatening jail time and $60,000 fines, but has had a pretty strange time um, with that timeline, um, literally backpedalling on it the next day. We asked Sydney Sider, Newman and Greens MP, Maureen Faruqi, um, to hear their thoughts on the current crisis. Hi, my name is Naman. So every um, single member of my family has tested positive. I have lost a grandparent to COVID-19 and have had three elderly family members in and out of the hospital over the last two months uh, on oxygen tanks. I understand the intent. I don't agree with the execution. I think this is an issue of compassionate and humane grounds. I don't 100% back up this decision. My heart goes out to all the people in India who are suffering the terrible consequences of COVID-19. It is absolutely unconscionable for the Morrison government to threaten Australians in India who are stranded there and want to come back to their home with jail time. This is a racist and a horrific ban. And it just shows us that if you are non-white, your citizenship will always be conditional. What this government needs to do is to bring home Australians not lock them out. And more than that, we must do everything we can to provide aid and support to people in India. Now we're joined by Rebecca Manibog, our Backchat producer. Hey, Beck, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to discuss this topic with you guys. Yeah, well, do you want to start off by telling us your opinion? Do you think that this is racist or that the government is just looking out for the well-being of Australian citizens here? Well, similar to Niman, um, I believe that, yes, there is a reason for it. However, it is not handled great. It's just, I believe it's racist and I don't understand the fine. Um, people can't even get back here because fights are getting cancelled. So it's like not even a thing. And I just think it's quite unfair to leave Australians there who are literally choking. So... Yeah, that's my thoughts on the matter and it's quite sad to see my friends and um, people that I know suffering and trying to reach out on social media for help to find beds and stuff like that. So it's just been really disheartening. Yeah, I think we're forgetting that by abandoning them overseas, they've lost a lot of rights. They don't have access to the things that they would have here and that they're entitled to have here, like healthcare and other services that they may need. Um, How did we get here? Yeah, it's been a really funny um, kind of rollout of this policy, I guess you could call it, um, all thanks to the Biosecurity Act. So originally announced on Monday, the plan was to, yeah, give people returning, who tried to return from India, um, Australians living in India, um, yeah, up to five-year jail term and fines exceeding $60,000, which is a lot of money, um, due to lots of academic pressure, legal academics and, you know, Indian Australians in the community. Um, on Wednesday, Scott Morrison kind of backpedalled and said that, you know, no one was going to go to jail, um, which, you know, is probably not up to him to decide, really. I guess it's something that courts would decide. And I think there's also, like, a really interesting legal thing here of, like, can you jail citizens that are just trying to come home? Yeah, well, on that note, we actually got a text in from Max in Bellevue Hill. He said, you know the government has cooked it when even Andrew Bolt is calling them out. And the the response has obviously been, um, 
mixed and a lot of people obviously we've um, contained the virus quite well and people are hoping to preserve that but we've also had hotel quarantine mm. um, for over a year now I'm trying to understand mm. why now they're you know channeling in on this country and saying okay no we, we don't want to let them in when we've had this system going for a year. Yeah and it seems to be somewhat working in my opinion mm. like the outbreak that we've just had wasn't even from someone who's returned home. Um, also, it wasn't even an Indian strain. It was a USA strain, I believe. Um, so I just don't understand the whole dividing and having to just find people coming from a specific country. And other countries have had strains and they've managed to come into Australia and they haven't had to face fines. Yeah, and this is sort of the government experimenting on this strategy because this is, you know, quarantine isn't going away. Like this corona, even when everyone's vaccinated, this is going to be a long path of, you know, dealing with how we, you know, do this policy. So I think it's the government sort of playing with this idea of like, do we go for um, complete elimination of the virus? And does that mean being hardline? Like, what, how does the public react to that? Um, and I think it's sort of positive watching them shiver and flinch after, you know, all this pressure um, has been kicked up. But it's very, yeah, it's sort of like it's been fun, you know, going to nightclubs and dancing and enjoying, you know, no coronavirus cases in Australia. But if this is what it takes, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the 9,000 Australians abandoned over there and nearly 200 unaccompanied minors Mm. um, is definitely not worth it. Um, But Thank you, Beck, for joining us for this conversation. That's actually all the time we have on the show this week. You can catch our full India recap on our Instagram tomorrow. Check us out at FBI to hear more. A massive thank you to our producers, Eamon Snow, Millie Roberts and Rebecca Manebog. This has been Backchat, your go-to wrap for news and current affairs. A quick reminder on the COVID-19 note, um, masks are compulsory in most indoor places and definitely on public transport until Monday 12.01. Head to the New South Wales Health website for more info. You can catch us next week at 9.30am. Stay tuned for Limbs Akimbo, who's up next. We're going to leave you with a song out from the Central Coast with the most. This is Lonely Eyes, a recent release from Sugar Soap. Catch you next week. (laughs) 